Do you have a story to tell about a terrible medical conversation? I want to hear from you. Please email me at christine at christinemeyermd.com. I can't wait for you to tell me more. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Tell Me More. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Meyer. On the show, we break down some of the worst conversations in healthcare. Why? Because I believe that together we can build better ones. everybody, welcome to this week's episode of Tell Me More, where we are having conversations about conversations. The hope is to uncover some of the worst conversations in healthcare and try to make them better. Our guest today, Leslie, just brought up a great point in our little pre-recording conversation that maybe it's not so much about bad conversations sometimes, it's about no conversations at all or lack of communication. So, Leslie, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So your story is really, really important. I mean, I I feel like every single story we hear on this podcast is really important because whatever the issue is, it has had a massive impact on someone's quality of life. But for you, we're talking about the big C word, right? We're talking about cancer. You were diagnosed with thyroid cancer. but almost weren't. So tell me about your story. Tell me how that unfolded. So my diagnosis happened in 2016, but it was several years prior to that, that I had been feeling, for lack of a better word, the feeling of heat in my throat. And I would, I think I mentioned it at a well check and it was, you know, the thoughts were, Oh, everything looks good, feels good. I don't think there's anything going on here, but let's just monitor it, right? Okay. And then if I happen to be at the doctor again for something else or the following year, if I had a well check, I would mention it again. It really didn't feel like something at that time that I should be addressing because what a weird symptom. Like I, right. You know, didn't hurt me. It wasn't causing me any distress. It just every once in a while, I would feel this weird heat feeling in my my neck more than my throat. And I think that was the confusion. People were like, yes. well, is it sore throat? No, it just feels like heat. And they would just like nod. Okay. <laughs> okay, crazy. The following year, I mentioned again. And in that mentioning, it was then said, okay, maybe you should go to an ENT. Since you've had this for a year, let's have the ENT check it. So go for a very uncomfortable through the nose, down the throat with the camera, checking everything. Nope, everything looks perfect. Nothing to see here. Okay. And so I just thought like, I wonder if everybody has this heat feeling and I just don't know it. Like, you know, hard to determine for myself at that time. Is this something that I want to pursue or do I just chalk it up to it's fine. And interestingly enough, I was supposed to schedule something with a woman who I didn't really know, but we were supposed to meet up. And I said to her, oh, I'm so sorry. I can't meet with you that day because I'm going for an ultrasound. And it was at that point that obviously at one of my appointments, it was determined that maybe we should just do an ultrasound to see what's going on. And she said, oh, what are you going for an ultrasound for? And I said, oh, I don't know. I just have this weird feeling in my my neck. And she said, let me just tell you something. 
if they find nodules or polyps or anything like that, and she goes, I guarantee you, they're going to tell you that it's fine. It's not fine. And you need to go and have those biopsied and you need to push and push and push because I've lived this and I had thyroid cancer and don't let them tell you it's nothing. And I was like, wow, okay. Like it seemed a little bit, I wasn't thinking cancer. So I just was like, okay, thanks. And she kind of just planted in me to be proactive. So sure enough, go for the ultrasound and there were polyps or nodules. I almost want to say they called them nodules. Um, That's right. Yeah. And, but again, the report was, these are totally normal. A lot of people have them, nothing to be worried about. And I just trusted that and went with it and thought, okay, um, everything looks fine. The following year, again, now we're into the second year of at my well check. Let's go check again and do the ultrasound since you had the nodules the year prior. And they check and say, you know what? One of the nodules got a little bit bigger, but still well within normal range. Nothing to be worried about. We're just going to watch it. Okay. And then the next year, this is year three, go for my next appointment. And that little piece that she said to me is kind of whispering this whole year, right? Since, oh, everything looks fine. It's whispering to me a little bit. And I think, okay, I guess I should go and get that addressed, but let's just see what happens. Let's see if it continues to grow or gets bigger or changes like they told me. And so I go to my next well check and the doctor finishes up the session and doesn't order an ultrasound like we had done the years prior as just like my normal protocol at this point is we're going to watch this every year is what I thought, I guess. Mm-hmm. And she just, she just said, okay, you're all good. And the nurse will be back in to give you whatever. And I don't remember what that was, but the nurse came back in and I said, is she not ordering an ultrasound on my, my neck or my thyroid or anything? And she said, oh, I don't know. She didn't mention anything. I don't have it here, but let me go ask. She leaves the room. She comes back. And in my mind, I'm a little bit, I'm starting to get a little bit angry. I I don't know if angry is the word, but I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to speak up for myself today. Like this is, I'm done with the, everything is okay. And I'm going to speak up today. So it's like, she's gone. And I'm like gearing up in my mind. Like I'm really going to say something today as if, why is that such a hard thing? First of all, (laughs) why am I agonizing over that? So the nurse came back in and said, the doctor said everything in the past has looked good in the last few years. There's not really a reason to do another one, but she said, if it makes you feel better, she would be willing to order the test. And I was like, I think it would make me feel better. All right, well, then she'll she'll write it up. And it was sort of like, I felt like they were appeasing me a little bit, mm-hmm. like crazy in there, wants her thing checked out again, you know? And then I go for the ultrasound and I get the phone call and they said, so back up a second, I was at the ultrasound of which I've had several times and they're focusing on, the left side of my neck a lot, like spending a lot of time on that side. And I'm thinking to myself, this is different than last time. Like they didn't focus this much on this side. So now my wheels are starting to turn. Something's not right. And of course, in the ultrasound, they don't say anything to you. They're very quiet. 
And she said, okay, the doctor's going to call you in a couple of days, which that couple of days feels like a lifetime. And I said to my husband, I just, something's not right. Like this whole heat thing I've been feeling, I think I was right all along. Like it's just not normal. And now we have this ultrasound that she spent so much time on that one side of my neck. And so sure enough, the phone call came and they said, you know what? We think you should go and get the, is it a aspiration? biopsy. A fine needle aspiration. Yep. Okay. And so now I'm starting to remember what that lady told me. And I thought, oh gosh, this is, this is literally what she talked about. How is this even happening? Mm-hmm. And I'm laying on the table in that room and, you know, my husband, Alex is sitting outside the room and I'm thinking to myself, I just know, like, again, everybody that's in that room doing the biopsy is so quiet. No one's saying anything. And it just gives you that feeling like something really is wrong. Like everybody's so quiet here and they probably can't tell at that point that something's wrong, but maybe they can. I don't know. And I want to say to everybody, like, what do you see? But I know they're not going to tell me. And I walked out and I looked at him. You know, we've been together since we were 15. So we know each other. Is everything all right? I said, I'm just telling you, I know something's really, this is not good. This is, we're not going to get good news. And we're walking down the hallway and I'm sobbing my eyes out. Like, how are you sobbing your eyes out? You didn't even hear anything yet. I'm sure that's what he's thinking. But he also knows I tend to, I have instincts, I guess. And I just instinctually knew something was wrong. And sure enough, the doctor called the next day and said, Leslie, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but you have thyroid cancer, but we're going to handle it. It's going to be fine. Here's the things that we need to do. You got to come back in the office and we'll have a conversation. So that was a span of years and years and years. And it had gone to three lymph nodes that they found in surgery. They took those as well. And of course, searched the area to make sure it didn't go any further, but you can't help but think to yourself, okay, so if, if we had done this three years prior or four years prior, when I first felt like I needed to be more proactive, but wasn't, could we have prevented it from going to the lymph nodes and prevented a larger process than what it needed to be? Wow. There is so much in that story to unpack there. So first of all, I want to start with this burning throat symptom, because I'm going to put myself in the doctor's shoes at that moment. And I'm going to say, that's a weird ass symptom. That is something (laughs) that I would be like, Hmm, never heard that before, but mm-hmm. correctly or incorrectly, I don't know. Like when someone says their throat is burning, we, we assume the inside of their throat, you mm-hmm. know, strep throat, a virus, acid reflux, like something inside. And ultimately you even went down that path and an ENT literally stuck a scope down your throat and there was nothing there, but still no one said, well, the throat could be different or at least asked more questions. Like, are you saying throat or are you saying neck, like probed a little bit? I feel like that's one spot it, way back in the very beginning that that should have happened. And then, so what about, I don't think you touched on this, but you're going in always for your well checks and you're just kind of like mentioning as an aside, also I feel this. And it's kind of like dismissed because one, it's a weird ass symptom. Nobody really mm-hmm. knows what to do with it. But they're examining your neck, right? At every physical, like someone's touching your neck and feeling. And at any point, was there a conversation about, 
maybe I feel something or everything feels fine or no. No, it was more like, let's run some labs and make sure everything is good. My thyroid was operating perfectly. And you just did exactly what everybody else did. Because I would say it's a heat feeling and they would think it was burning feeling. Two different feelings to me. Like it was just felt like I was breathing hot air almost. It wasn't burning. It was just felt like heat. And I think they were thinking what you were talking about, like the reflux burning feeling was not that at all. It almost reminded me of when I was a kid and you'd get a fever and you'd be breathing. You'd feel the hot air coming out of you with a fever. That's what it felt like to me. Wow. So the conversation around that, just not even getting to the need for the ultrasound, but just around this word, literally we're talking about one word and how to define that word. And I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, what do you mean? I feel that is just so bizarre. I don't even know what to do with that. And I'm saying that right now, sitting in my temporary little recording studio and I'm, I have all the time in the world and I'm not thinking about any other patients or what I got to do today. And I'm still in my head going, what in the world does that mean? And then I, I plop that into a day full of patients, full of disasters that you're trying to sort out, full of a million things running through your head. And definitely that word is not going to get the attention it deserves until you, the patient, you know, starts to be the squeaky wheel, right? Like, as long as you're like, ah, okay, you know, most of us would be like, all right, she's okay, I'm okay. We definitely want to figure things out and do the right thing. But, you know, when it really seems like everything's fine and the patient's not putting up a big fuss, like we all, we all kind of go with it. It's the path of least resistance. So we go with it. So, but ultimately you have the first ultrasound. And what do you think what do you think was the turning point where the ultrasound got done? What happened that led to that first test? I think it was the, can we go back and look like I, we had this conversation last year and it's still, you know, there was no answer, but can we just dig a little bit deeper? And I think it's more about like, okay, well, what could this be? And have we checked all the things? And it is happening here. So what would be the next step? It was that conversation of like, okay, we've done the blood work. You had the scope. What would be the next step? And the ultrasound was the next step. So that, I mean, that's logical. It's unfortunate that that logic took literally a year to unfold. Like that's very problematic. And then, but then fast forward to the, when you weren't going to get, so you get ultrasounds every year for a couple of years, right? And yes, there's nodules, but they look fine, quote unquote, fine. So the radiologist interpretation is there's really nothing here to worry about. Your doctor's going with that. Like, yeah, well, the radiologist said they're fine. So therefore you're fine. And you're taking those two opinions and you're like, okay, the radiologist thinks it's fine. The doctor thinks it's fine. Nobody knows what this heat in my throat thing is. So we're just going to go with it. But then at one point, your doctor decides, like, how many ultrasounds are we going to do, right? So you don't need an ultrasound this year. I mean, ultimately, it turns out that was the most important ultrasound that you had of all of them, because that's when it was determined that you needed the biopsy. But your doctor was almost not going to do that ultrasound. So, and I know you mentioned in, in our original conversation, like, frustration about that, about, like, 
why doctors just won't order tests. So I'm going to speak to that, but I want you to tell me from a patient perspective, like when the doctor's like, I don't think you need it. Like what goes through your head? So I, by personality, tend to be more proactive than reactive. So in that moment, I'm thinking to myself, where's the harm in doing the test? We have health insurance that we as a small business pay eighteen to $20,000 a year. Like, let's use it, you know? And I guess I just, in my mind, I'm thinking, why wouldn't this doctor want to pursue and if nothing else, make sure everything really is fine? Like, why in the world would someone go, you know what? I say we roll the dice and we don't look further into this. Let's just see how it plays out. You know, <laughs> like, why would we do that? So it's interesting to me. And I've, my daughter has had a lot of health issues and we've run into the same thing where people don't want to do tests and it just baffles me. And it makes me wonder, is there a reason why a doctor would at some point say, okay, I'm going to limit what I'm ordering for you. So you hit it right on the head. And I, I think I, I mentioned to you that we had a conversation on the pilot for the show specifically about ordering tests and the pros and cons of ordering tests. And there's, there's a lot that goes through our minds when we're deciding to order a test. I mean, first of all, when it comes to something like an MRI, for example, MRIs are really, really expensive. And so we have to jump through a lot of hoops most of the time to get insurance companies to cover the MRI. It involves, you know, calling, making a case, you know, and a lot of times, even though we may feel the MRI is necessary, the insurance just won't cover it. But that is not the case with a plain old ultrasound and ultrasounds are really, really cheap test. So the other thing that goes through our mind besides like the hoops to jump through to get a test covered is the actual risk of the test itself. So like, for example, when we do a CAT scan, a CAT scan has a ton of radiation. And then we have to consider like the patient's lifetime of radiation exposure, like to this time in their life, how many CAT scans have they had? And in the future, how many CAT scans are they likely to have? And is this CAT scan, is the dosing of this radiation really, really worth it? Because there is risk with that. But an ultrasound, Again, there's no risk, there's no radiation. So it's a cheap test with zero risk. So then I'm like, okay, so what are other reasons why I might be like, ah? Well, one of the things that we talked about in that first show was sometimes when you do a test, you find things that you weren't intended to find and there's unintentional consequences of that. So then you go down a rabbit hole of more and more testing and the end result is just a patient that's had a million tests, some of them more and more risky, without an improvement in their overall health outcome. So to be devil's advocate for you, let's say your doctor did order the ultrasound, which ultimately happened, and you did end up having a fine needle aspiration, and it wasn't cancer, but then you walked out of that biopsy with a giant hematoma, which happens you know, more than we'd like to think from that needle aspiration. So, you know, the harmless ultrasound, the radiation-free ultrasound, the cheap ultrasound led to a fine needle aspiration, which is supposed to be this minor, easy procedure. But now you have a massive hemorrhage in your neck. And I, I'm being overly dramatic just to, you know, <laughs> illustrate the point. And then, so then that hematoma like presses on your 
trachea and then you can't breathe and then you're in the ER and blah, 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 blah. And by the way, that scenario has actually happened to me in my practice. Simple fine needle aspiration gone wrong, right? So, I, I, but I think the problem with us is that we as doctors, we jump ahead. You know, like we play chess like five moves at a time and we don't communicate that with patients. We're like, you don't need an ultrasound. And in our head, a good doctor will be like, because, and go through that. But an even better doctor would explain that to you. Like, look, what are we going to do with the information? If the ultrasound shows this, and then you need this, here are the risks with that. But we never, we don't often take the time to do that. And in your case, obviously, like you needed that fine needle aspiration. So it should have happened no matter what. But in terms of conversations like you would have gone into that procedure with a lot more information you know you would have been like well i know this ultrasound was abnormal this time i know that a needle aspiration was recommended i know that there's risks but i am making an informed decision as a patient to go ahead with this procedure but until that point you're kind of like you're just trying to figure out what's wrong with you and you don't have any other information, except you have a symptom that hasn't been figured out yet. And you know, you have nodules, which you're not supposed to have. And now finally, one of them has changed. And, you know, like you said, I think the lack of that long conversation I illustrated led to instead of a simple contained thyroid cancer that was in one nodule, now you have thyroid cancer that's in lymph nodes. So pick up from there, Leslie, what was your treatment like at that point? Well, from that point forward, it becomes, you know, we had three children, all like 15 years and under. And so you just start the ball rolling of first off managing everyone's emotions and making sure everybody knows how this, and P.S., I'm talking to them about how this is going to go, but I really have no idea what how this is going to go. So you know, and Alex and I, as the leaders of our family, need to make sure that we're moving forward in a way that's like going to get me better, but make sure our kids are okay. And then the conversation with my own parents is like, my God, you know, that's almost to me, the conversation with my parents was worse than the conversation I had to have with my kids. Hmm. Because you put yourself in their shoes. And as a parent, you never want your child to go through any of this. So I'm literally, I'm on the phone with my parents. My dad is crying and I'm consoling them. You know, I'm saying it's going to be fine. I have no idea what, what's in store, but I'm like, this is going to be just fine. You know? And from that point forward, the treatment is, you know, it's, it's a long process because they have to rid your body of certain things and you can't have iodine for a certain period of time. And it becomes a combination of having surgery and taking the radioactive iodine pill. So it is a very complicated treatment process once thyroid cancer is in the lymph nodes, right? So go back for me to the, so you had the biopsy, you're laying there, you leave and you're walking with your husband, Alex, and you're like, and you're crying because you know, like this biopsy is going to show something bad. You just know, you have this instinct, right? And that's a phenomenon nobody, no matter how many degrees they have, can explain, but it's a very real phenomenon. We have instincts about our bodies and our health, and 
too often those of us that are locked into scientific explanations dismiss that. But you know at that moment it's going to be bad. But then obviously somebody has to inform you of the biopsy results, right? So tell me about that phone call. So how long did it take to get the phone call and how did that conversation go? So they did tell me it was going to take several days before we heard back, but the doctor literally called me the following afternoon, so less than 24 hours. And it was the same doctor who did not order the ultrasound initially. And we didn't have that conversation. And I'm not an I told you so kind of person. I did feel that. Like I I thought to myself, hmm, probably should have ordered that. But of course, now I've got bigger things to be thinking about and focusing on. And really, it was a very quick conversation. Like, I'm so sorry, this is what they found. I'm going to connect you with so-and-so so you can make an appointment to come in and see us and we're going to get it figured out. That was it. So at that point, your mind goes into, you know, like you said, informing everybody, like I have this, there's going to be a treatment plan. So then do you see a Who's the next doctor you see? Is it like a surgical oncologist or an endocrinologist? Who is next? Yes. So we had to see the oncologist. And again, the timeline of all of this is a big blur for me. Number one, because we're in that time of our life and I can't remember <laughs> yesterday. But right. it really was, it was an experience of nothing I've ever experienced before. And you're sort of going through the motions of like, see this person, see that person. There there was a piece of it that, you know, Alex would come with his little yellow legal pad at the oncologist. So we go to see him and he's frantically taking notes. And the doctor is very like, you don't need to take notes. Like we've, we're going to give you brochures and it's going to be fine. And you're going to come and take a pill and there's going to be a surgery. And, but then everything's, this is the best cancer that you can get. And I'm thinking to myself, how could any cancer be a good cancer? And I don't know anything about this cancer of like, does this become something later? What's my mortality rate? And I kept asking them like, what's the, what stage am I in? And they're like, oh, there's no stages with this one. And I'm like, wait, what? Like, I just, it was very, I think in the medical world, thyroid cancer is so not a big deal that that's sort of how it was delivered to me. But in the lack of it not being a big deal, there was not a lot of information given and maybe even the sympathy from a doctor to think like, this is a big deal because you may know that it's not a big deal, but to the patient, they just know they have cancer and it's a big deal. (laughs) Right. So I have had this exact conversation with patients and boy, I can't tell you how many patients I've had in my practice diagnosed with thyroid cancer, hundreds. And thankfully, no one has died of their thyroid cancer. So when I have to make that call, you know, your biopsy showed cancer and we need to do more. And I say those exact words, like, this is not a big deal. Nobody dies of thyroid cancer, which is definitely not entirely true. I'm sure some people very rarely do. I say that from a place of, I want to make my patient feel better. I want to deliver this news, which is bad news. Nobody's going to say it's good news. and But I want them to walk away feeling like, oh, okay, it could have been a lot worse. But you're saying as the patient, there's a negative side to that. You feel like you're terrified. Somebody just told you you have cancer, but you're also feeling simultaneously blown off a little bit. Would you say that? 
correct. And it's interesting because once you get a diagnosis of anything, you start reading, researching, joining support groups. And I had joined a support group. I wouldn't say a support group. It was more about this iodine-free diet that you have to go on. And so in there, they talk about all the different foods and you have to read the labels of everything at the grocery store. And it's a process. And so this page made it so much easier because everything was laid out for you and you could just go and pick the stuff off the shelf and you knew what to buy. You didn't have to stand there reading labels. And it's interesting because so many people commented on their doctor saying that to them. Like my doctor tells me this is the best cancer to get, but I so resent that. And oh, wow, like everybody else had that same feeling. And looking back on it, I understand now why a doctor would say that it's, you know, you don't have lymphoma, you're, you know, it's, I understand it. But at the time, it just, you almost get the feeling like, okay, this doctor's telling me this is the best cancer, and it's easy. So I'm left sort of thinking like, are you really going to be paying attention and, and mm-hmm. as big as I feel it is, in mm-hmm. terms of my care? Wow. Oh, my God. Well, Before I say another word, you have single-handedly just now changed how I deliver the news about thyroid cancer from this point forward in my practice. Honest to God, I never, ever looked at it like that. I mean, I feel, and a little bit of it is like, lady, I just told somebody they have stage four colon cancer. Like, I do not need to, like, hold your hand through thyroid cancer. Like, Like, nobody would ever say that out loud. No doctor who's sane or wants to stay in practice would say it like that. But that Mm -hmm. is kind of how it comes off, right? Like we see truly, truly, truly bad cancers and they're gut wrenching and you have like a good cancer. So like, I can't take any more time on this. And that is God, that's awful because you may be my 100th thyroid cancer conversation that I'm having, but it is your first and only thyroid conversation that you're having. And everybody deserves, literally deserves that level of empathy, conversation, advocacy, regardless of the cancer diagnosis. And we could even, you know, extrapolate that to everything. Like you have the flu, you have bronchitis, (laughs) you have thyroid cancer. I mean, it doesn't really matter. Like it's our job as doctors to diagnose, treat, and also just make people feel better regardless of what we're talking about. So ultimately, I'm just going to say, maybe the conversation isn't, you know, you could potentially say, I just want you to know of all cancers, this is the one to get and we're going to handle it. But I want you to know, I don't take it any less lightly. Mm, Great. I'm going to do everything that we need to do to make sure that you are good. And maybe it just needed that second part. Like I do this for you and I'm not going to take it lightly because it sort of feels that way that you're just like, fine. If it's any human that hears they have cancer, it's not fine. Right. I mean, girl, you just rewrote my entire dialogue. (laughs) Say that. (laughs) Add this little sentence that literally is like five words. Wow. Okay. I, this is episode number, I'm, I'm, I don't know, but I feel like for me personally, as a doctor continuing to practice medicine, I just took home the most gigantic and important 
learning pearl of all of them because it is something that I personally, and I could even cry talking about it, thinking if I want to call every single patient that I've ever said, this is the cancer to get and, and apologize to them because it is just absolutely a fact that now that I'm hearing you say that, how that must make you as a patient feel with so much uncertainty ahead of you. So obviously you're sitting here and it's seven years later and you're great. So tell me about the, like the end and the follow through. So you go through the crazy low iodine diet, you get radioactive iodine, right? And what's that like? Tell us what that's like. So again, this is the piece where I wish I had someone who'd been through it because as a doctor, there's no possible way that you could ever know the emotion and the feelings that someone is going to feel when they're going through this process of unknowns with the radioactive iodine. So I had to go to the oncology office and they sort of do a pre-radioactive iodine conversation with you. They gave me anti-nausea medication, which I very much appreciated because some doctors didn't do that. And then they say, okay, so now you're going to drive to the hospital by yourself. So Alex and I are at this oncology appointment. You're going to drive to the hospital by yourself because you can no longer be in the car with anybody because you're going to be radioactive. And then you have to drive yourself home and just be mindful, like go slow because you might start to not feel good. Like how far is your house? Like they're asking you all these questions. And I'm like, what the heck am I getting myself into? And off we go and they send us out to the parking lot. And of course, Alex and I are there in two separate cars. And that is a moment that I will never forget because we go out in the parking lot and he hugs me and I'm thinking to myself, like, oh my gosh, like I have to go do this by myself. Like we've, I mean, we're together, but we do do things apart, obviously, but not anything like this. And how is it that this is the hardest thing and the scariest thing? I'm going to swallow radioactive iodine and I have to go do it all alone and I have to drive home by myself. And it was, and I'll never forget, we were hugging in the parking lot, like so confused about what was to come and not really knowing. We're just kind of like following what we're supposed to do. But that was a very profound, and we said no words. Like mm. we just, we just looked at each other and I said, okay, I guess I'll see you later. Like what a weird, it was just such a weird time. and. He gets in his car and I know that he's like bawling in his car because I could feel it as we were separating. I'm crying, he's crying. And I go to the hospital and they say, okay, you're going to come in this door. And then when you leave though, you're going to go out this door because you cannot be near other people. You can't walk through the hospital anymore. So there's a very specific procedure here. And I get there and they, they open up this gigantic door that is, you know, multiple layers thick. And they put me in this room by myself and they say, okay, here's your canister. You have to open it up and take the pill that's inside. And there's those radioactive symbols are everywhere. And I'm kind of like, oh my gosh, like what am I getting myself into? And the nurse says, okay, it's in here. You have to open it up because she, of course, can't be in the room with me with this radioactive pill. And take this pill. And then the minute you leave, you cannot stay. You have to immediately go out this door and drive yourself home. And P.S., 
you can't just go home. You have to go and be somewhere where you're isolated for five to seven days away from pets, people, anybody. And thank God my parents had a house here and in Florida. So I was able to go and be at their home and be in a place where I felt comfortable. But in these groups that I was telling you that I was in, my heart hurt so bad for some of those people because they had nowhere to go. And you're not supposed to go to a hotel, although people do, because the radioactiveness can go through the wall and it gets on everything. And if it's not cleaned properly, you could be exposing people unknowingly. People do go to hotels because they don't know where else to go. The hospitals don't allow you to stay. It's not something that's covered by insurance. There we go again. I actually read about a woman who she didn't have anywhere to go and she didn't have the heart to go to a hotel. And so she went and she pitched a tent and she slept in the tent for five oh, days. My God. By herself at like a campground. And I'll never forget, I cried so hard for her because I thought, wow, here I am. I'm separating from my husband. I can't be with my family. And she's in a tent. And what does that say about our medical? In other countries, by the way, they do, you stay in the hospital until you test out from being radioactive. But for some reason here, they don't do that. And so people are left with the choice of, do I stay in a different room than my kids? And how far away can I be having to make decisions on on where to be? Wow. So I want to just clarify something. Not everybody that gets thyroid cancer gets radioactive iodine, right? You get radioactive iodine generally because the cancer is outside of the thyroid nodule, it's in the lymph nodes. So just rewinding, had you had the biopsy sooner, had the cancer been diagnosed earlier, it wouldn't have gotten to the lymph nodes, you wouldn't have been getting radioactive iodine. That whole piece of trauma didn't have to happen. So again, where a better medical conversation could have dramatically improved your outcome. And then I just want to say like, yeah, isolation is terrible and terrifying and all that. But so people don't want you to be around other humans because you're emitting this radiation, but you literally had to swallow it into your own body. Like, so everybody's worried about you personally being toxic to them, but you're the one who literally has this radioactive iodine in you. Like what? Is the weirdest. They're telling you this is fine. But you cannot be anyone, not even your dog. And I'm like, wait, what? It was a very strange, it was hard to separate the two of like, yes, this is what I have to do. And they're making it seem like it's not a big deal, but then I can't expose anybody for seven days, seven whole days of possible radioactiveness. And then even after that, I have to report to the airport that I've been radioactive for a period of time. Like it was a very interesting process. And again, you start to wonder like, what should I believe? And who am I trusting? And what information are they giving me to just make me feel better? And what is legitimately the truth? And again, like you're talking about the the trail of could I have prevented having to take the radioactive iodine? Because now, am I more exposed to other kinds of cancers for having taken the radioactive iodine? A hundred percent, because that's what it does. Mm-hmm. So yes, there's a whole rabbit hole of 
of thoughts around that. But yet I'm supposed to know that this is no big deal. It's fine. Wow. <laughs> so ultimately, you're okay. You ended up also having surgery, right? It could have been just surgery, but for you, you had, you got like the soup to nuts menu of thyroid cancer treatment. So if you had to leave, I'm going to ask you two, a two part question that is not typical for how I end these episodes. You, normally I say, if you had to leave our listeners with one piece of advice, what would it be? So I, I am asking you that. But I also want to ask you, if you were speaking to doctors, period, what would you say to them is specifically in the era or in the situation of thyroid cancer diagnosis? So one, what would you say to patients? And two, what would you say to doctors who are diagnosing people with thyroid cancer? So to patients, of course, I think this is the resounding message from all of your podcasts is to just not be afraid to advocate for yourself and to make sure that you're with a doctor that you can actually stop them and say, listen, I'm not comfortable with how we're handling this. I want to do more and to be able to have the permission to make decisions for you, for your body outside of what your doctor feels comfortable prescribing. Or when that doctor said, yeah, no, I really think you're fine. We don't need to do this, but if it makes you feel better, I mean, Yes, it makes me feel better, but I also want to know that you want to know that I'm okay too, you know, to have that. And it wasn't even like the doctor came in and had the conversation to say, tell me a little bit more about why you're wanting this again. It was just the nurse was like, oh, she said it's okay if you want to. So that whole scenario could have been handled differently because it takes a lot for a patient to speak up and in that moment where the doctor's sort of rushing through your your visit and you know that they're busy and there's a room, a waiting room full of people and they've got to get to the next one. And you sense that when a doctor's like wrapping up because they got to get to the next one. And you mm. kind of like, do I want to speak up one more time? Because their time is valuable. And so when you do advocate for yourself to have the doctor sort of recognize that it probably took a lot for you to mm. advocate for yourself. It's not a comfortable realm to be sitting in a doctor's office for us. It's very comfortable for all of you. It's what you've lived, right? right but not right, so much right. for the once a year person, you know? Yeah. So I guess for that doctor to just really hear and, and maybe ask more questions, mm-hmm. uh, tell me what you're thinking and feeling about that. And because maybe I want that for you too. I just haven't thought deeply, deep enough about it. Right. So it goes for both of those, for the patient to be able to advocate and then for the doctor's response to that to be interested enough to want to know why and to not just be, it's not just about the test. Right. It's not just like, let me placate this person and move on. I just order the test and whatever. So this has been so enlightening. As as I said, midway, you have changed my approach to a big part of what I do. And not even just thyroid cancer, just the delivery of Bad news that's not so bad. (laughs) Bad news that could be worse. Like when we're delivering that, like how could we do that better for all of those downstream reasons? Thank you so, so much. For me personally, you've made a huge difference. I know for every single patient that has a weird like heat in their throat, (laughs) they are never, ever going to walk away and say, I guess it's fine. (laughs) And for any doctors listening, 
you know, just taking into consideration one, if you really feel strongly that a person doesn't need a test, we'll at least have a conversation about it. Don't relay it through your medical assistant and yeah, you know, just move on and then work, really work on the delivery of news, good, bad, in between, you know, that can have a huge, huge impact on how a patient walks away from that visit. Thank you, Leslie. I'm so glad that you're okay. To all of our listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of Tell Me More. We've all learned some really, really valuable lessons. I will even say probably one of the most valuable episodes for me personally so far, which is so surprising. I did not expect that. If you have had a terrible conversation with a healthcare provider or no conversation at all, where a conversation would have been helpful, please email me, Christine at Christine Meyer, MD. I can't wait for you to tell me more. Thank you so much for listening. Are you ready to join our conversation? Just go to Facebook and search Christine Meyer, MD. Follow us to join 14,000 other people committed to creating better conversations in healthcare.